Did you know power tools, electronics, toys, and phones all use lithium ion batteries? Yeah, that's kind of crazy. And everything is rechargeable these days, which I guess means everything has a lithium ion battery in it. Or that we only recycle less than 5% of all these damn batteries. Amazing. That's why I'm really glad this week we spoke with a revolutionary lithium ion battery recycling startup. We're literally turning battery disposal from negative to positive. <laughs> I picked that up. Green Lion could be considered the Michelangelo of lithium-ion batteries, where they've spent 10 years developing this proprietary machine. It's the size of a small house. They can process old batteries in one fell swoop. Sounds amazing, Jacob. Who do we talk to from Green Lion? Leon Ferrand. He went from living off the grid with his mama to work in the oil and gas industry and finally full circular back to Green Lion. Amazing. And I did really appreciate Leon's deep knowledge of the energy storage business from gas and oil back over to the battery world. And of course, his humility and lastly, his passion for the circular economy. So if you want to learn how recycling batteries and the circular economy is about to save the world, you got to stay tuned. Green Lion, they're leading the charge. So if you want to learn more, you should listen up. Pull up, Ty. Leon, thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. It's nice to see you both again. Nice to see you too. I uh, thought we'd uh, kick this off with, I ripped this off from another podcast I heard you on and they were like, what's a book you recommend to people? And it was a book that surprised me. I was like, why did Leon recommend that book? So I, you know, I guess I want to start with like, why do you often recommend the war of art and how did it leave a mark on you? Uh, well, it's actually... Yeah, The War of Art is a book that I'd read before a few of those podcasts. So it was fresh. and But I think it's just such an interesting spin on sort of dissecting your own creativity and allowing, you know, any human being in any sort of walk of life an insight to how their creativity might be sort of world-changing. And, and that they, whether you're an artist and you're creating traditional art you're painting or you're sculpting or you're creating in any format or you're in business and you're trying to do things in a creative way and you're taking a different angle you know it's important it's in it's important what you're doing and and you can challenge yourself to push the boundaries i, I just think and how it's written it's just written really really well so so i think it's cool do you consider yourself to be a creative person it's interesting because sort of growing up, I I would have said I was creative, a creative much more. I was always, you know, sort of vying for art scholarships and and in programs. My mom's an artist, my both my parents are architects and, you know, it's very much an arty family. But then I went into business. And so, you know, <laughs> capitalism kind of kills that, kills that a little bit. But <laughs> I do think that I try and be very creative with the way that I look at, at business models. So you can be a creator, or very passionate about circular business models, and you've got to be a bit creative to make sure that you can make money and you can, you can also instill sustainability. How come you got to be creative? 
Because it's not the sort of traditional format, right? Consumption and consumerism is the way that we've been heading, the way we've been taught. You must buy a T-shirt, you must own it, and you must wear it. If you are to flip that and you to look at it a different way, you know, you have to be creative to make it, you know, cost-effective, efficient, easy for somebody to then, you know, maybe use a T-shirt for the period they need it for. And then, you know, you, you've got to change mindsets. So you've got to, you've got to be creative how you approach it if you want to make money straight away. Interesting. I'm kind of like you. I, I grew up in an artistic family, both parents. You know, my dad was a architect. Mom went to art school and was like a designer. Growing up, I too, I was like, I'm a creative person. And then, you know, as I've worked in the business world, maybe it's just like comparing myself to other people where I'm like, man, you just come up with ideas like just off the cuff constantly i'm like i'm having a really hard time thinking creatively on this like maybe something you've like you feel like you've, you've beat the horse dead right in those moments i'm like maybe i'm not very creative but i think it's kind of like what you're saying of like looking at things with a different angle and then solving something trying to solve it in a way and maybe borrowing from another industry like i you said in the other podcast the you had borrowed from the oil and gas industry to figure out the business model for green lion and i'd argue that is creative right yeah, I mean, I mean, another one just to loop back to the first question is The War of Art is the first book I've read that acknowledges business people to be able to be creative that I've read. I've read heaps of books from about musicians and and different creative genres. But yeah, I think you can be creative in the business world as well. And you should be. I think that entrepreneurs are by nature quite uh, very creative if they're especially deep tech. They're creating something that doesn't exist. They've, you know, they've got that in them. Yeah. Leon, how old were you when you started your first company? A registered company. I think I was, I was 18, but I think I was trying to build BMX bikes when I was much younger. <laughs> wow. wow. Okay. Nice. <laughs> Dang, building from scratch. I used to go to the tip and find bike frames and parts and, and <laughs> uh, then buy the rest and put them together. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's clever. That's what, amazing. The tip. What's that? Oh, sorry. The dump. Uh, what do you call it? The, <laughs> yeah, the, the dump um, in America. Land, the landfill. Landfill. Yeah, yep, the landfill. Totally. Yeah. There's lots okay. of good stuff there. Yeah. Wow. You circular economies in your just like in your entire life, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of lots of good stuff there. There's lots lots of bad stuff there too. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> you gotta Fair. sort through it. Fair. But, yeah. So there was a company that you started when you were 18, 19, 20. There's one that you ended up selling, right? I guess. When did you start that company? 2010, I guess, was, I mean, I didn't sell it for a lot of money. So otherwise, I probably would be be doing something different. But yeah, it was it was cool. It was an internet business and a, a sort of automated e-commerce site. So it kind of worked for a little bit. And it, I, I guess it washed its face, I guess, is the, is the saying. And then <laughs> and got a little bit of cash. But I mean, nice. it didn't change the world. It wasn't changing Fair. the world. And that's but hey, it's an exit, as, right? It's an exit. Yeah. Yeah. So. And how old were you? Were you 30, 25? Yeah, I was like mid, late 20s, right? So turning 40 this month, which is scary. <laughs> but yeah, I would have been in my 20s. Yeah. Nice. I mean, that's still a pretty young age to, to build and then sell a company. What was it like doing it at a like a relatively young age? I mean. Yeah, I'm thinking of when I was between 25 and 30, it's like most of us are just working in, in the corporate world, you know? Yeah, well, I was. I mean, I was working in the corporate world um, 
while trying to create startups up until up until sort of eight years ago. And I think it was an important part of my my experience level to be an executive and a and a CEO of a corporate company because it sort of teaches you. Startup founders like to um, sometimes over beers uh, kind of hang shit on on corporates. But thing is, a corporate is a startup that's done really really well and sustained it. So they've yeah. learned a few things along the way, and they you know it's it's important to understand governance and compliance and making sure that that you run run a company with safety. I always thought, just back to your question, I think I always looked at others and thought that I was just really slow and really late. There's definitely no Kylie Jenner and you know, all these <laughs> people that made made billions in their 20s. So I just thought that, you know, I'm I'm an underperformer and I'm slow and I'm I'm not quite quite there and not good enough yet. Yeah, I don't think don't think I celebrated it at all. <laughs> I was gonna say that that's yeah, I think that's crazy. I mean, you're definitely successful, and and even the fact that you were able to do these things, I think, is pretty admirable. But I get it. I get the pressure. I think at the end of the day, people start companies at every age. Some of them are successful. Some of them are not. When you have any success, it's pretty impressive in this in these days and age. So, yeah, I think uh, you Thank should. You. No, it's cool. You celebrate. Yeah. Amen. I, I just was working at a startup really young, nascent. It was just like, so it was like chewing glass. Sometimes I'm like, this is so hard. I'm like, this is, I'm like new challenge. Like constantly it's like sneaks up on you and it's like, now this is going on. And, and like, you're always dealing with like maybe some like systemic challenges that are going on. And it's like, yeah, this is really tough. You know, this is stuff that like Ty has had probably so much experience with that. Like you just don't know until you know, Right until you're yeah. in it, you're just like, wow, this is this is really dirty. You know, like this is as in like this is re- extremely messy. And ideas don't solve it enough, right? Like just like action in the right direction, and then like taking a lot of bets, and just like some of those bets work out, and some of those bets work out really good, and a lot of those bets don't work out great too, right? Yeah, you feel I, me on that? I agree. <laughs> I feel you on that, and. No, I, I I call it like I think I mentioned to you last time. I mean, tires tires had more of these experiences than us, but you know, champagne and razor blades is how I explain <laughs> I the uh, entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. So uh, I think there must be enough champagne to keep us coming back. <laughs> Otherwise, you just wouldn't, right? <laughs> it is. It is. Maybe for better or worse, but it's a little bit addicting. <laughs> and yeah, you want to just keep keep doing it. But man, that saying is exactly. nails it exactly. on the head. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, maybe we'll start a band. It'll be heavy metal. And, <laughs> like us three will be in it. And it'll be called Champagnes and Racer. Exactly. We'll just be startup guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, love that. I think it'd be good. We could, we'd be a hit in, in Korea. In Korea. Oh, yeah. there we'll you go. I like Korea. it. Korea would love us. Yep. Yeah. They like K-pop and yeah. metal. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think they'd, they'd like us. We, we'll just put in some lip syncing Korean stuff. They'd love <laughs> some it. dance moves, some choreographed dance moves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leon, when did you first start thinking about climate change? Because I know your career took you to the energy sector, oil and gas. And then, like, was it when you were working there? Like, was it small things over time? When did you first start thinking about it? I think my mom impressed it upon me very, very early. Our house was is not a farm, but it was a place in the bush in a sort of rural, semi-rural area. Uh, it was cheap and <laughs> we were there so that we could try and be more sustainable. We had our own water. We didn't take water or, and we tried not to take power. We 
Wow. You know, I, I remember questioning uh, my mom about why these solar panels are so important when she was just like kind of breaking her back to try and afford the first iteration of solar panels. Wow. And we grew things and we um, had lots of animals and stuff. So I think that I understood sustainability at a very young age, thanks to my mom. I'm not sure if I understood it, but I just, it wasn't important. It wasn't, it was just something that had to be done. Consumption to me is, is always felt like we're, we're doing something wrong. So the overconsumption of goods and packaging is, is always felt a bit wrong. And then I was completely hypocritical and, you know, sort of didn't do my mom proud by going into one of the only two big industries in the location I grew up, which was in Perth, Australia, it's like mining or oil and gas, really. And so I was in oil and gas for 17 years in that in those corporate roles. So it didn't sit that well. And in 2015, we had the oil crash or price of oil, you know, became unsustainably low. Then I used it as an opportunity to try and become a bit more sustainable with our business offering and our, our revenue contribution and do more offshore wind specifically. And so we did do that fairly successfully. We replaced a big bunch of revenue with oil revenue with with wind, engineering and, and whatnot services. But then you learn about batteries. <laughs> yeah. And then it throws you and then you're like, oh man, I'm not really doing such a great job for the for, for the planet if we are supporting something that must use batteries, because batteries are not so sustainable in their present form without without them being recycled and whatnot. And so then I went down a rabbit hole, which we spoke about earlier. It's it's a pretty deep one, whereby I looked at all the renewable energy sources and found that there's only two in the world that don't require battery storage in order to level out the energy. And so, you know, solar, wind, hydro, everything other than nuclear and thermo probably needs to go into battery. Then you're just mining the world wow. and, and digging up resources to the end of time unless you find a way to make it circular. Just so I understand. So all, and I think it helps the audience too, all energy needs to be stored somewhere. Might as well be stored in a lithium ion battery or just a battery in general. So, and, and then you, you see huge problems with the inefficiency of batteries, not only in their storage capacity, but in just how they're recycled. Am I getting that right? Or how they're created, mined, and all that. How they're created too? Yeah, I mean, you know, mining is obviously a highly carbon-intensive process. Not saying it's not required. I think it's it's always going to be required, unfortunately, to some level, or at least in the in the foreseeable future, it's important. But but the fact that if you look at lithium-ion batteries right now, less than five percent of their content is is recycled material. We're simply not recycling to the levels we should we should do in the world of the recycled material. Two-thirds of that still gets recycled just in China. So outside China, we're just just not doing our part. And then it's it's sort of highlighted or um by the fact that we could, let's say in the USA, the end-of-life batteries and the battery waste, it, when recycled and rejuvenated through like a process uh, that Green Lion offers, we could contribute up to 50% of the new battery materials. So you could wipe out a whole bunch of, of carbon by just doing better at recycling and rejuvenating these batteries. All right, so we're going to dig into the batteries. I definitely want to hear about Green Lion, but you mentioned a couple 
times already this concept of circular economy. This is a kind of a new concept, I think, at least for our audience, in the sense that we've talked a lot about climate tech, even some new technologies, climate change, obviously, and what all the effects that it's having. But what do you, what is the circular economy? Why is this uh, so interesting to you? I guess the goal of it is that we eliminate or reduce waste and pollution, right? That we we stop making new things and we start reusing and recycling things that we've we've already used and we've already manufactured. The reason why it's important is that many industries have demonstrated it's achievable. If you look at the battery industry, lead acid does it very, very well. You know, over nearly 90% of the content of lead acid batteries are old lead acid batteries, recycled material. So like there's a blueprint here. We can do it and we can and and many industries can achieve it. If you look at very, very simple, fast moving consumers, consumable goods, like we consume them, we throw them away. If you think things in your household, if you think clothing, and it's about challenging the norm. It's about innovators and, and entrepreneurs, but also big business, thinking about how they how they can change things. And and of course, the government is also playing a huge part. The EU led the way with the end of life producers responsibility legislation, which has been rolled out in in Singapore and uh, different different countries in the world where it says that once you use something like a battery or if you sell a battery and the buyer has finished with it, it's it's your problem still. You have to go make sure that it gets it gets treated pro- properly and it gets recycled and reused. So legislation, but I think mostly the way that we think about using things and, and living is, is important. So y- your example of you're still responsible for it once your customer uses it, I think that's a really interesting like leading way to think about this of like the problem hasn't gone away just because you sold a product <laughs> and it forces new thinking. So it's this kind of concept of who stays owner of this problem, if you will, this like creation, this awesome product that eventually can become a problem, but that we still need to uh, to care for right over time. Yeah, super interesting way of thinking. Obviously, a lot of the companies we've talked to kind of fall under this umbrella of climate tech or sustainable technology companies. Where in your mind does the circular economy or companies that work in the circular economy or circular way fit or work with climate tech? Are they separate? Are they part of one or the other? Do climate tech companies need to be paying attention to circular a little bit more? How are you thinking about this? You seem passionate about it. So I just wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah. No, I think they should be one in the same. They're symbiotic, right? If something's sustainable, it means it can keep, you know, we can keep using it without damaging the community and the environment around it. And and that's sort of the underlying premise of circularity. I think that that a lot of sustainable, truly sustainable companies and climate tech companies are circular. I think that that's the that's the sort of problem that they're solving. But it's not just a climate tech problem. It's a every every tech problem. If you can make it more, you know, you could have an e-commerce site, right? You could have e-commerce or marketplaces, and they could be they could create their own circular economies. They could they could create a unique and innovative way of doing business whereby they try and try and reuse and recycle. Fair. I like it. So on that note, circular economy, what is the abbreviated story 
of how Green Line was started. I know you have a co-founder. He had been working on the technology for a bit, but maybe you could uh, pick up the story of when you when you met him and how you were like, you know, I work in oil and gas. Like, I don't know how I can help you. And then, you know, enters Leon. Yeah, you'll find uh, I've got a pretty simplistic way of thinking <laughs> by the end of the podcast. But so it was pretty funny. We got put together by the Singapore government, SG Innovate put, uh, takes. He had completed his scholarship, PhD at very prestigious university here, National University of Singapore. And I was, of course, a disgruntled corporate person. So they invite you all into these cocktail mixes and we and we met. And he said, oh, look, I uh, for 10 years, I've been working on a chemistry and a, an invention to recycle lithium-ion batteries. And I said, oh, my God, I've just gone down this rabbit hole. Lithium-ion batteries are so bad. You're doing such a great thing. And then we we ended up just becoming friends. And we went to lunch all the time and, and we ran coffees and whatnot. And I said, I, maybe I can help you with a business model. I think this is really interesting. It's a shame I know nothing about batteries, nothing at all. And I just probably can't help you. I'm not technical enough. And, you know, it took him a, a few weeks to just <laughs> illustrate that actually what he was planning to do is build a chemical reactor that, that breaks down these batteries and remakes them, this battery material. You know, he had to say the words implicitly, this is exactly like what you build for oil and gas. And you're very, you know, your your background is pretty relevant. And so, you know, I was that, I'm, I'm that simple that it needs to be spelled out. And of course, it was a stepped approach, but we very quickly, within kind of three months of commercializing the idea, we already sold our first plant. And so then we had to, we had to build it. Right? Yeah, you got to build it. <laughs> we had to, yeah. So it was a, it was a whirlwind and it's been, been probably, I guess it's five years now that we're working, you know, every, every waking hour on this. And so it's not very long, but it seems, it seems, I, I can't remember doing anything different. <laughs> you guys seem primed for I can't find a better word, success in some way. Like it shows even working hard on like attacking it from all the different angles. Like I, I learned about the, you have all the patents, you license the technology and you have like a maintenance engineer. And so like you are really trying to be like, okay, how do we make this happen? And like make something that is really impossible possible, right? And so I guess on that note, why did you take a bet on this technology? I mean, it's like, maybe it's easier you know, Ty and I are sitting here at the end of five years going, yeah, well, this seems like a no brainer. I mean, like you make the technology boom, it does this thing and it's super valuable, lucrative and good for the environment. Why would you not do this? So like uh, rewinding back five years, why did you take a bet on this? You are right, because back then recycling was not a, you know, it was not a big thing. The recycling of batteries was outside of China. It was basically, it was certainly not a, not a popular topic and people didn't want, want to deal with it. And there wasn't the legislation either really supporting it. It was just starting. So it was happening a lot, you know, it was happening for a decade in, in China, but um, outside of China, it was, it was just not. So the reason, if you meet my co-founder, Dr. Reza Katal, you'd, you'd understand. He's a super charming, super influential presence. I mean, he's he makes you feel makes me feel super super dumb. But 
And so, so first of all, it's about, for me, it's always about betting on people and, um, and, and, you know, I definitely go with a bit of a gut instinct, but it, the rest of it was all penance paying for my uh, previous contributions to global warming. And it was about, I think this is required. It's not maybe the, it might be nascent. It is nascent. It is, um, we're certainly first movers. The technology is not used in the world. So it's going to be hard. Um, how do we get it adopted broadly? And it's, uh, it, it may fail because it's so early in that you need to convince the world that they need to recycle batteries before they, you can convince the world that they need to turn it into a higher value product. And then you need to convince them that your, you know, brand new technology that's not, not demonstrated is the best one. <laughs> so there's a lot working against you, but I thought it was a worthy cause. Even if we fail, it's a worthy cause because it will set the foundation for the next and the next. And we need this in order to cut down our, our carbon footprint, keep climate warming to 1.5 degrees. And we need, we need to all do our part. So that was my, that's how I saw it. I, th I thought it was a fair investment. That's big, man. <laughs> like the, just to like the penitence part, you were like, I got to make up for all this time. But the other thing that I want to just, just hammer on, like you said, this was a brand new technology. This isn't being done anywhere else. Is it? Is that still true today? Yeah, definitely at a at a commercial level. It's like I mentioned, now two decades on, of course, China's uh, recycling and they, they're huge, they're massive. One of my colleagues, uh, one of the the many, many very, very bright people working in Great Green Lion, he, he's been in the battery industry for much longer than, than most of us, over 20 years, I think it is. And how he puts it as a PhD in battery materials, he says, Certainly over the history of battery recycling, there's three generations. Generation one is when you take the batteries, end of life, and battery waste, and you crush them up, you shred them, you separate out the metal and the plastics. And, and so basically you have the metal material all mixed together. So you've got precious metals and you've got non-precious iron, aluminium, but also with cobalt, lithium, nickel, it's all bunched together. And, and that's generation one. So you've got a thing called black mass. That's what's happening on mass. That's the majority of the businesses you hear as battery recyclers. And that's happening in Europe and America, the like, and the rest of the world outside, outside China and Korea, typically. Generation two recycling is taking that black mass that you've already created and then separating it into metals. So then what you do is you take away all the non-precious or you, you, you identify the iron, aluminium and, and copper, and that goes on one stream. And then you've got, and you create nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, uh, lithium and manganese, and, and that comes out separately. And then you, then you purify and you refine it. That's probably a different player, a different company. You take it to a, a higher purity, a battery grade purity. Then those materials... Then it gets sent to someone else to turn into oh. cathode material and anode material. So the supply chain and the logistics companies are making, making good money. You know, generation three, what we do is taking that battery waste directly to cathode material, battery grade cathode material, anode material in one process. So why it's novel is it's far more efficient, right? So 
The process I explained before to get to our end product would have taken 24 to 60 hours per metric ton. And so we do all of that in eight. But anyway, I don't want to bore everybody. No, no, with this, that's but a, it's you, super interesting. So it's faster. Yeah. Yeah. The logistics of the. It's yeah, way faster. It's faster. It's way faster. It's um, the value creation and the yield is so much higher because you can imagine when you move things around, let's go through this solvent extraction process to identify or or separate all the metals. You you lose 30, 50% of your precious metals. We don't lose uh, these precious metals. We're faster. And then the, the product, the end product is so much higher value. It's a specialty chemical that our, our profit jump up you know, that's how you can quadruple your, your revenues and jump your profit up significantly. But the big thing is that we reduce our carbon footprint over those traditional recycling methods by 78%. So, and it's 90% more efficient, of course, than mining out of the ground. I think it's even more than that. So, but our LCA says 90, it's, um, so you're just saving a lot of impact on the on the environment by creating this using this material as opposed to using raw material or you know the chinese processed it seems like a no brainer to like to, <laughs> I mean, just to, to here, get a I'm green like, lion machine yeah so so it's like here, i want to give you a scenario <laughs> so like what if i wanted to start a battery recycling business cuz like actually as i'm i'd been learning about it over the past week i was like Yo, Tyna should do this. Like Tyna should do like either we should either do this <laughs> yeah. or you know, there's carbon accounting. I'm like, we should do battery accounting, but like in the whole tracking <laughs> things, right? Because of that 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 law. No, really, that like, is what you should, should do. That's for what sure. would it take to get going for Tyna to get going? And like say we want to become profitable and lucrative, but we are starting from square one where we don't have a green line machine. What would we do? What would it take? What, what do we need to get? And what would be the potential outcome of it? So if we define battery recycling as creating that stuff called black mass, why we didn't go that route is that's that's done. I mean, they use technology that's available. So you you could buy it. Let's say you and Ty created uh, JNT Recycling uh, <laughs> Limited, right? So, so go buy go buy a machine from from Europe or or China and and install it. You're fine. The complex thing, of course, is um, is capturing capturing the supply chain and the end of life batteries and the battery waste. If we look at America, so what I'd say is maybe this L and T Limited needs to be in a jurisdiction whereby it's uh, legislatively supported. In that battery recycling is important, it's mandated, or it's, uh, or at least it's somehow important to the country. That it's easy to collect. You know, the supply chain is complex, right? Like you need to collect it. You need to do it in a safe way. Some countries deem it as hazardous waste. I mean, batteries with charge in them that are damaged and whatnot—they're the ones that catch fire, of course. So you need to, you need to um, handle that. And then you need to bring it to a location and you need to process it whilst it's being stored safely and before it causes you any problems. And so then you'd then you'd crush and shred it. So profitability is a big thing because you can already you can already do the sums. The money's adding up, right? Yeah. You've got a facility, you've got yeah. logistics infrastructure, you've got, did I need to pay for batteries or did they pay me? In some places they pay you, some places you need to pay them. It's very jurisdictionally um, different. 
But fundamentally, why we chose our business model, and maybe that's the one you should choose with LNT, is that we provide a way for those battery recyclers to make more money. And we we know that the problem when when we looked at the battery recycling industry, we saw the the biggest problem is that battery recyclers don't make enough money. And that is why it's not happening more. So the private sector is not rushing in at that time because they don't make enough money. They need to get to scale to make money off this black mass, selling black mass. And right now, America and Europe, they sell almost solely to uh, Northeast Asia. So they'll sell to China and Korea. Almost, almost 100%. Almost all comes to Asia, right? Because they're the only ones with the capability to process it. And then America, Australia, Europe, then they buy back the batteries or the battery materials. So wildly inefficient. They're like, you did the hard work. Thanks. Now we can make these new products. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I mean, the best thing I hear from my clients is uh, also sometimes they say, look, this player in China says they want us to only concentrate on making black mass. And they say they'll buy it all from us. They also control the index and the commodity prices. So I'm like, of course they want to yeah, yeah, keep doing totally. the the you know the heavy lifting and and get paid paid nothing for it. So that's what what happens in the industry. So you need to make sure you understand all of that. If you come in with a new business model, what we did is we said we don't want to fight anyone for black uh, for the black mass or the or the feedstock. We will go with the partners that already have the waste. For two reasons, one is that we don't have to have the battle, and we don't have to um, we don't have to spend capex uh, um, on building these infrastructures. Um, and the other one is that we built a modular technology to be able to install as an inline solution to a battery manufacturer, a cathode producer, you know, the guys that make the brain of the battery, or a battery recycler. We'll install it right there where the waste happens to stop the carbon and the cost and the inefficiency of sending it all the way to Asia in order to refine it. And then the IRA kicked in. So the inflation reduction. And it was a godsend, of course. And it suddenly said, look, we don't want to buy material from these less secure countries. And we need to do it ourselves. And so currently, probably not uh, in, in the US, they don't mine a lot of the raw materials. And they're building capacity, of course, for the gigafactories that are coming in in droves, right? So that's fantastic. You've got battery waste. You don't have battery, you don't have mines up and running yet. That'll be a 20-year process. But you do have waste. And then you do have battery manufacturers. But what miss, what's missing is the middle portion of converting that battery waste into something that can go in a battery. Right now, it's sent to Asia and then sent back. But of course, the gap that we see to be really important to sustainability in the American circular economy, for example, is we need to help to get that material converted from black mass to cathode material, battery grade and anode material. And Greenline can do that at a very low capex. The model is to keep capex low, to be on the hook for the long term over the life of the machine. And we make sure that we produce a high quality outcome. So I just heard the IRA helped America in particular, like start to not 
do this shipping back and forth to Asia. So now we have obviously the incentives in place for business to do this. Do we have the factories and the remanufacturing of batteries in the States that can help us? So let's say we put a green line machine in the, do you have both sides of the supply chain to, to manage this? now yeah yeah that's the that's the cool thing right so there's uh very big companies coming into the states or let's say north america fair, fair. into north america so you've got the big battery manufacturers panasonics and whatnot building gigafactories and so they're the cell producers they're the guys that are going to use this material but you've also got cathode manufacturers that we make this cathode material and they can take this and they don't have to do much to it to shape it and, and make sure it's ready for a cell. And so Umicore, BASF, they exist in, in North America and they're investing billions to scale up. So we do have everything we need in North America to close the loop and create a circular economy. We just, it's a normal evolution, right? Government sees the problem, says, look, we need to recycle. Let's, let's incentivize recycling. And then, you know, downstream refining and processing is not the, not the first thought, and it's natural. And then you see that this stuff's being sent away. And so that's not good, but, but we're getting there. And we'll be the first in the supply chain. It's easier because there's already a path to Asia. So I put it on a boat. I send it to Asia. Takes three months to get there, but I don't care because then, and then I'm buying it back in essence, if at all, if whoever's using it, I'm buying it back from them. Is that right too? Yes, exactly. The sector is buying it back for sure. Is, yeah. Yeah. But if you're a battery manufacturer, you are buying back your own material very, very often. So let's say you're a cell manufacturer, you're, you're any of the big guys, your CATL, for example, and you've got battery waste of between five and 30% of everything you produce is doesn't come out right. So it's waste. Oh, yeah, that waste you send away, you might get a little bit of money for it, you might even ask, you might even pay someone to pick it up. And then they process it, they send it back to Asia, they turn it back into cathode material, anode <laughs> material, and they send, send it, it back to you, you put it straight back in yourself. <laughs> you buy amazing. It. But in the so, green lion model, there's a processor right there waste goes into this house sized Remanufacturing, re reseparating chemical processing plant, reprocesses it, outputs cathode right there, usable material without having to go to three other places that you could cycle right back in. That's right. So we make these uh, the specialty chemical. It's perfectly balanced. It's to the specification of the of the battery maker. They tell us what they want. We we make it. We bake the cake, and then they should slot it straight back in. So. Okay, so let's talk a minute. I've been thinking about this the whole time. The battery industry. I mean, everything you said towards the beginning of our conversation was every type of storage methodology that we're talking about, whether it's sustainable or not going forward, needs almost everything, needs a battery. But we already have it in our electronics. I think we were joking just before the podcast started about rechargeable, you know, earbuds versus plug-in earbuds and why we why we use one or the other. Like everything these days is rechargeable, which means it has a battery in, right? So, how big is this market and more importantly, where do you see this world of batteries in 10 years? Yeah, I mean, the world of batteries is ever evolving and energy storage there's, you know, you can read an article every day almost about the new the new breakthrough in batteries and and i hope it continues 
and I hope it, you know, evolves. It will evolve much quicker than it has over the last 20 or 30 years. In the last 20 or 30 years, 30 years, lithium-ion battery chemistries have basically gone unchanged. The base compounds and the base base metals, they vary the ratios and the and the way that they bind them and the way they separate them and the electrolytes and the and and of course that has shown tremendous jumps in density and, and energy and the amount of energy they can store. So I think it's going to keep on evolving. But what scares the hell out of me is that you see the world, you know, if we look at all the wearables, you you say earbuds and you, you look at the watches, but, you know, everything, right? Everything has batteries. So good friends of mine, some of my best uh, entrepreneurial mates are uh, have hydrogen businesses and you know, we laugh when people, you know, someone put us on a stage the other day and said, is it hydrogen or battery? And we had a laugh about that because even hydrogen needs battery storage, right? So you you need a, in a hydrogen powered car, you, you need, need a battery. battery. Right? Yeah. So it's not going anywhere. It's a really, really big problem. And we need to, Green Lion can't solve it without a huge, huge amount of other innovators in the space. And and it's just so big, we we need to get get moving. It is nascent now, like it's growing. But do we have this idea of battery count? Do we know how many batteries are out in the world right now? Yeah, I think people people really stumble around on on that topic. I think it's a good startup. But maybe it is something you <laughs> yeah. guys should do. Because this is all I keep thinking about. Yeah. The other thing, which uh, specifically, you know, I really want. So hopefully, you guys can build this, or anyone listening is you know nano tracking of the material what what green lions mission is and our single eye focus is on creating a circular economy for batteries and specifically what we've said from day one is where we feel achieved will be when we take a spent battery we rejuvenate it and put it back in a brand new cell and we take that that battery goes out into the environment till end of life and then we take that same battery back and we make it again and when we can prove that we've done that, we feel like we deserve to pat ourselves on the back. That's our core mission. It's, of course, just symbolic of what we're we're trying to do. But in order to do that, we need to track the material, not the battery, but the actual nano form of tracking the metals or the materials. So if you can get that done, that'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> but this also ties to your original concept of, of ownership of that of those materials all the way through the life cycle. So talk to us a little bit about why in some cultures, some countries, the government has put these regulations in place where you sell a battery, you sell a thing, a widget, a product, you are responsible for the life of that product. Has that worked in those economies? Why have they done that? And what are we seeing as a result of that from your perspective? I mean, it has worked, and it's um, and it's and it's driving sustainability. The EU is the leader with their recycled and circular reforms, right? So, what they say is that your batteries must have a minimum percentage of recycled material in them. So it's scaling up in the short term to thirty percent, then fifty, then eighty percent. They can see that it's achievable. They're forcing the battery manufacturers to uh, take responsibility for this and therefore it trickles down unless they are responsible they're they're looking at margins they're trying to make batteries cheaper for people in fairness to them 
they're trying to make it, you know, be competitive and all the rest of it. There's technology like Green Lion doesn't exist. So until now, right? So they they haven't been motivated to reuse material. They go this the tried and tested route and they try and innovate and, and reduce cost. In Europe, this is changing things. And as countries follow, what that's forced is the very, very big battery manufacturers, they're standing up now and they're starting to take responsibility for their supply chains. They're also, one, one OEM mentioned to me, you know, we had a conversation many years ago and what he said just stuck with me because he said, Leon, it's not about, I said, surely you want to control your supply chain. You know, are you looking at Green Lion in order to make sure that you can get cheaper material? He said, it's not about getting cheaper material. The winner in this game is the in the long term is the one that gets material. So it's not whether you get it cheaper or not, it's who gets it, period. The losers will be the one that get blocked out. And 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 so their particular strategy is at least secure everything that we ha- we sell. At least bring it back to us. Keep keep ownership of interesting. So this becomes a moat for a company to basically own the life cycle of that product. And to your point, bring it back, keep it in the fold, right? As it were. And then that becomes their moat of we have a billion batteries or we have enough materials to, to, to always have at least a billion batteries in circulation. Interesting. Exactly. There's a part of me when I think of the slippery slope of talking about circular economy that thinks about the capitalism argument being like, what happens when everybody's recycling? <laughs> what happens when everybody's reusing? Who's making money in the middle, I guess, as it were. But it sounds to me like the story you just told me, that is a little bit of a capitalist concept of like, I want to own my customer. I want to own my market share and I want to keep a hold of it, right? That's precious real estate for me. Is this how it kind of plays into this concept of making money in a circular economy? I guess is where I'm getting to. Yeah. I mean, what I tell all the time, right, is that you have to look at the, not not the situation now, but the situation in the future. And that's what you build your model for. Let's say, just as you identified, you know, um, I think Duracell makes, produces about 90 billion cells per annum. So extrapolate that over a few years, you know, and let's say they manage to take all of that back always. So you just you just block your competitor from at least that yeah. material, you know. And then as different restrictions and and limitations get imposed on mining, you know, and and or the material is finite, right? There's not it's not in, infinite amount of cobalt in the world, you know. When that runs out, who's who's making good batteries? Only the people that have that material. So that's one thing. The other thing you said about capitalism and how does it work with with circularity and and whatnot, what do you have to look at is is we, you know, I can only speak about our particular model and our particular model, what we see is that in the future, people are all going to be making money and some people are going to have more money and some people are going to want to take that, that market share from the rest, right? So if you look at the battery industry right now, there's recyclers, there's cathode makers, and there's battery manufacturers. That's There's anode makers and there's a lot of suppliers, but just to oversimplify it, and there's a refiner in the middle. But of course, they they will become one and the same with, with I think, uh, they'll have to be with battery recyclers. But if I'm a battery manufacturer, I don't want to be paying all these people at one stage, right? 
and I want to go Tesla. I want to I want to go the Tesla route, and I want to vertically <laughs> vertically integrate. integrated. That's how I think of things. And so our model is when that happens. Of course, we are the most frictionless solution for them. We have a modular machine. We install it there. It solves your problems. You don't have to send your material anywhere. You don't have to pay for another facility. You don't have to partner with someone or make a JV. You just place our tech in your site. In your site. You're really building for the future here. You're building for this future. And not just a future, a future that you're helping envision and create. Like it's it's circular in itself. Like you're helping this thing become circular. And then once it becomes circular, you're completely integrated into the circle. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love well, it. We hope, right? Yeah, absolutely. Singapore's founder and, and leader Lee Kuan Yew, he, he used to say that there's always multiple futures. There's, you must plan for multiple futures. And stuff. Fair. You need to look at Brilliant. That's the one we chose. We hopefully have alternate futures we've thought of the in case it doesn't <laughs> doesn't work out the way we hope. But yeah. But like I said, it's also one that you're helping to create if you can become. So before we leave this subject, then I got to ask, okay, how do you guys make money in the middle and how do you stay integrated into this process? We have uh, multiple different models uh, or how we make money. The most popular one, of course, at the moment, as the industry grows and it's nascent is one that we take, we recover some money for the build of the machine, but it's very low. So we keep the capex low for the client. Going back to that problem statement of, of uh, five, six years ago, when we said, you know, battery recyclers just need to make more money and then the, it'll happen more often, battery recycling. So we keep cap, capex super low, but we do earn every time we produce more value, which is every single batch, every single day that we produce a higher value outcome, we share in that profit improvement with our client. And that's the licensing model that we have. So that's over, over, you know, 10 to 25 years is, is the life of the machine. The other models are whereby if you're a very, very big player and, and they want to buy the machine, then we, we can, and we have some, and we have some, some level of maintenance. And then the other way is that we are also making JVs where we, we cooperate facilities we come with technology and we we um come with performance guarantees and someone else puts up the cash and the the input and and wants to take the output so we have multiple different um again because you know each country has so many different dynamics on, on how they view battery recycling which makes a lot of sense you have to have multiple models, you've already gone global. You know what I mean? I think I would say in the startup world that I've come from and been in for years, it's it's always about how do we get to the next market? But that market is still usually in the country that we started in. And then there's this big idea of how do we go international? And that becomes a big, big exercise. You guys built an international company right from the get-go and therefore already have a lot of these things thought through. I just have to ask, like, what challenges did that bring, like starting off as an international company? It poses uh, the normal challenges, right? It's like identifying the right people that understand a global business that are not are not nine to five people. That doesn't work. <laughs> and you also have to find highly communicative people. And so we've managed to do that. And we've, you know, we've hired the thing I'm most proud about is the team in Green Lion and the culture. It's somehow transplanted in some cases with people. In some cases, it's just by osmosis or something. It's transplanted our culture 
from our Singapore operation to our Houston operation to you know the other state the other states in the US to Germany to Seoul and to Australia Melbourne and you go there and the people are just as quirky they're you know uh, laughing about you know <laughs> just similar stupid stuff and having a good time <laughs> and they're also just working like ridiculously hard for and purpose driven as opposed to we I feel like I can say we have zero mercenaries in our business. We have people that are there for something greater than just the salary or maybe the the success of the company. How would you describe the culture that is disseminated to all these locations? Maybe in just like three adjectives or three words. So I'd say that it is, I'd say it's fun. I'd say it is purpose-driven. Uh, oh, that's two. I, well, let's say. Right. Let's I'll, say allow we'll it. It. I'll allow that. We'll, we'll add a yeah. dash in the middle. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah allow it. And then, um, yeah, I mean, probably passionate or something because the guys just really give a shit. It's the, it's absolutely the best culture, you know, I've been involved in. And I wasn't the driver of it. It's all the other people because absolutely the states gets led by our director and vp out there and so he's created that in australia it's the co-founder my co-founder and uh in germany it's uh it's one of our other leaders and and so you know like it's it's just the really great people sounds like there's a lot of love i don't know i imagine a like a big heart for some reason you know like a like a big heart in yeah. the shape of the planet because like it's kind of fun, yeah, yeah. it's passionate, and then it's also it's it's purpose purpose driven. Um, that's really cool. I guess on that note, since you know you've been involved in starting companies, and you know seems like almost your entire career, starting with the BMX company, what's a big thing you've learned <laughs> that you would like to share with the next person starting a climate tech company or or maybe a deep tech company? Well, I guess it's just. Deep tech and hard tech, climate tech, if you combine the three, it's just super hard. So what I hope that they learn from me is not to listen to any of those things and get involved. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Just don't listen to anyone and jump in because, you know, if you win or lose, you um, should burn the boats. You know, you should burn all forms of exit and you should commit fully to it because what you're doing is is truly important. And the world needs more hard tech solutions. You know, we software is important and it can optimize, but hardware really makes the fundamental changes and can really reduce things like carbon and climate. And we need software to work in with it. But sometimes people stay away from the hard stuff. I think you should eat your eat your broccoli first. You're definitely equipped to do it as well. The the other thing is that people say, look, I need some more experience or I need to learn this or I don't know this. You're equipped to do it if you're passionate to do it. Your passion will drive you far enough to attract others which are smarter than you, which is the only way that we have become successful. And if you if you truly believe in your cause, then you need to take the leap. You'll compensate for your, uh, in my case, my, my uh, lack of intelligence and and failures you compensate with brilliant people because they think that you're at you're either passionate or dumb enough not to give up on this thing so, that's what i'd say 
I love it. I have to follow up on two things that you, you keep talking about here, which is people. I love how passionate you are about the people in your company and the people that you work with. Because I totally agree. I'm a huge people person and I've seen it in startups where like great teams can make even bad products successful yeah. a lot of times yeah. and horrible teams can kill the best of ideas. I mean, That's it's right. just amazing. Yeah. And so when you have that around you and then to your point around like filling the gaps, when you surround yourself with people around you smarter than you, it's just such an empowering place to be. And I will say, I think this is a theme throughout of this podcast series this last year and a half of talking to all these climate tech founders. I come from that tech startup world. Jacob and I both do. Sounds like you've, you've touched on it as well. And there's this old adage of, you know, software's eating the world. And it's just not true. Like, it's just not. And it's not true specifically in climate tech. Like we need carbon sequestration, right? We need these, these are hardware problems. These are physical molecule problems. These are not software problems and software can't solve it. To your point, software is a tool. It's an empowerment, but it cannot solve these big problems that we're talking about. It can't stop flooding in the Congo <laughs> with software, right? Yeah, like we need right. to start getting real. So I think that's, something I have learned in this series of talking to founders and operators in this space of you got to go in and this is the hard thing. It's the harder thing to do, but you got to go for it. So I'm super inspired by that too. And I appreciate you bringing that up. We always ask this question because it's the forward thinking question around climate tech in general. And it can be in any realm that you're, you're thinking about, whether it's your industry, the circular economy or anything, but from your perspective, Looking at this problem, the climate problem that we're all talking about, what in your mind is the next big step change that we need to make in sustainability, climate tech, whatever, to help move us forward as a, as a species? I'd say, I mean, it's a big, big question, right? But from a macro level, just slow down or stop the consumerism, the using and throwing out of things that we either need for a short period of time or that we um, don't need it all really to improve yeah, our life. Yeah. So if we can, if we can do that, and if we, if we do need something as fair, use it till the end of life. And then if we can't use it or it's not fit for purpose, then, you know, see if we can find some other person or, or application for it. And when it really, really dies, then you recycle it and you start again. So, I mean, it's a, a psychological, a social change and a business model change, a, a legislative rethinking. So it's pretty, it's pretty massive. But, you know, of course, I keep touting this, the more circular economies we can create, we make a consequential impact on our climate emissions. I think that that's the way that I want to um, make a change. And so, and the rest is by, by true innovation. So the other thing I'd say to anyone that's listening with cash, the bankers, find a way to see innovation as bankable, you know, because, because typically it, this is the, this is the mismatch. If you're deep tech, it means you're, you're doing something that the world hasn't seen before. And by its very nature, you're not bankable because they can't, they, they can't show security in it. So we need to change the way that we we think about financing. I couldn't agree more, man. 
And it just says that like, we have to challenge our investors. We have to challenge our, our VCs, our, our angels, the people out there to, to take these bets. You know, I think this is this question we asked you early on, like, why did you take this bet? You know, like it was a, a new technology, completely nascent, even to today, it's the only one out there doing this type of thing. And to your point, because there's no comps out there for bankers to look at, they, they don't know, understand how to make money on it. But sometimes you just got to bank on innovation. I love that. I love that. You just got to bank on the big idea. And if we really want to change the world, that's how you got to do it. So I appreciate that. All right, Jacob, I think it's time. We're about to wrap up, but we're going to do something kind of crazy, but uh, we call it rapid mayhem questions. But, you know, so true or false, we're going to ask some <laughs> true or false questions. And given, Leon, you know a lot about the circular economy and lithium-ion batteries. I think you're going to do really good on this, but I'm going to try to stump you is, 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 my, is my honest goal. So are you ready? Okay. Okay, you ready? All right, true or false? According to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, 65% of household items are used less than one time a month. True or false? 65%. I feel like it might be true because you quoted a foundation, but it seems like a high amount. I'll, I'll go with true, but I feel like it might. It's false. It's yeah, false, but you're on the true. right track. It's ah, higher. It's 80%. Ah. He's, he's tricky. Uh, he's tricky with his wording. Easily, he is let's keep going. All right. As of <laughs> okay. 2020. Makes sense, actually. It does, right? Yeah. Like, how many things do you touch every day? I feel like I touch the same 20% of things. Total Pareto principle going on here. All right. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> 2020. Yeah. In a few years. But our world economy in 2020 was only nine, uh, 19% circular. Big, massive circularity gap here. True or false? False. You're right. You're right. False. It's actually it's smaller than this. It was nine uh, percent. Yeah, yeah. I would have said it's about half. Yeah, I, I mean, even yeah. Today it's probably half of that. Okay. I'm not sure what it is yeah. today, but I wonder how they. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious how they measure this. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's move over to lithium ion. All right, lithium ion batteries can be charged and discharged hundreds of times before their capacity starts to degrade significantly. True or false? Ah, I know this one. Yeah, that's, that's definitely right. true. <laughs> it's more than hundreds. Okay. Thousands. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't incredible. realize. It's amazing. Ah, fun fact. Just a quick fun fact is that you can recycle a battery an infinite amount of times. Amazing. That is like millions Lord. of times. Like I can do it a wow. million times. Millions, billions, billions. That makes sense of the whole winner is those who get the materials because <laughs> then you literally yeah, have a finite yeah. piece of the pie in the infinite circularity universe. And that's exactly. beautiful. All right. This, this one's kind of mind blowing. As of 2021, we were using 1.6 earths, meaning we're using about 60% more of the earth's resources than it can regenerate every year. Yeah. I've got to confess. I've, uh, this is me cheating. It's true, but it's because I've seen oh, that dang before. It. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, that's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, it's it pretty mind blowing. It is mind blowing. It's crazy. It's mind blowing. So Pacing blowing. wise, by 2050, we could get to three to four Earths, which is which is pretty nuts. So you know, two two to three times more. Uh, and then uh, last one. So I I didn't even know Tesla Teslas use lithium ion batteries, and they put them in the in the base of the car, and that's why the the base is so heavy. So the Tesla Model Three 
has 12,170 batteries in the base of the car, true or false? That is true. Uh, that'd be true. And then if you look at the S or the, or, and certainly the plates and, and all those, all those performance, they've got more than double that. You might be right. I had written false here, but it actually, it's a minimum of 2,170 batteries, but it, it probably goes up to, yeah. Oh, minimum. Sorry. Sorry. Minimum. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. That's the that's minimum. What's sure, crazy yeah. that the model S the first sedan had 7,000 batteries in there. And this one at a minimum can have 2000. That's crazy. It's like three times less. All right. We're done. You did pretty good, Leon. Not that way. He's, he's tricky. He, he, you got to watch his wording. You got to watch. The way he's <laughs> I'm like Regis yeah, you from, uh, yeah. you know, who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> got to watch him closely. Exactly. <laughs> Leon, more serious question. What would you say to someone who says climate activism and capitalism, they just can't coexist? Like you can't, you can't be good for the earth and make a lot of money doing it. I would say they have to coexist, right? So the private sector is driving this innovation. And so capitalism spurs this private innovation, of course, it has to make money or someone needs to think they're making money on it or us average Joes, we don't have the cash to get them off the ground. It's, it must coexist. It's not going to be driven, you know, it's not going to be top down. If we wait for the government to implement legislation to make this easy, and give funding for the greeniums or the green premium. We're we're <laughs> yeah, never going to yeah. move fast enough, and we're going to be yeah. at like you know, maybe too late. Five planets, yeah, in no time. So it's too late. Yeah, we need to get get off our ass and stop making excuses and and you know. Yeah, we all know the government the moves too slow on things. They're they're too reactionary. So we we need to do something about it. Yeah, capitalism has to do it, and that's our premise. So we asked the big question of like, what's the next big step change that the climate tech world needs? But right now, when you think about, you know, the everyday person and our everyday existence, and you touched on this a bit is my guess, but we always ask this question, climate change, it's so big, it feels a little bit overwhelming, a little bit nebulous, and people feel a little helpless uh, in what they can do to help. But what is something you would ask people to do today that can make an impact in your mind? Well, the biggest impact, I think, is by if you have a creative streak and you have an idea and you think it can make a change is to get out there and do it and support those who are doing it or or work, go work for a startup. You know, you're, you're contributing <laughs> if you're working for a climate tech startup. And Ty will tell you it's very fun and very rewarding. It's more champagne than razor blades. And you learn a lot. So that's it. what I would say. If you, I love it. And, and don't dismiss the small things like, you know, just cutting single-use plastics out. And, and don't don't dismiss those things as being like, Ah, it never makes a difference because if everybody dismisses it, then of course we do, we don't make any consequential change. But I think everyone is is doing their part. I, I'm really really optimistic about the way the the world and especially young people look at what needs to be done. So love it, great advice. I love the idea of joining startups. I like that one. No one said that one yet. Join I totally startups. Agree. Join startups. If you can't join them, jump in. Invest yeah. in them if you can't invest, invest in them. In it, join them. Buy their products. Yeah, totally. I'm I glad like, you didn't like. say don't buy another cordless vacuum. Like, you know, buy one with a cord or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it is what it is. Buy the best thing you can buy and use it till it just cannot be used anymore. <laughs>
Well, Leon, this is awesome. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting with you. But before we go, where can we find you out on the internet? Where do people go to find Green Lion, you, what you're doing? Well, you can check us out on our LinkedIn. You know, that's uh, that's where we have lots of, we actually have some pretty exciting announcements coming up soon. So check out the Green Lion is, of course, green, L-I-dash-I-O-N.com, you know, being green lithium iron. And uh, website, you know, it's, uh, but LinkedIn, you can find me, you can reach out, anything you need. So I really appreciate the time. You guys are amazing. I feel like we, uh, we've been chatting in a bar for, you know, 10 minutes. Right. It's almost I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's, it's been great. I love talking with you about this stuff and I love your vision and, uh, I love what green lines doing. So, um, you all too. the best. Uh, thank you so much guys. Jacob Ty. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for creating, creating something. So, um, you know, what seemed impossible that like, really, I think is going to, it's going to change the earth. So like really from my heart, thank you. See you guys. All right. Have a good Ciao. one. Bye.